Morning. Trek crew, you need to stay here. Sorry, you can't go with Pastor Doug. You got to listen to me one more time, youth. Um, and uh, these uh, these screens that I uh, that I I worked so hard to get up at Coast Bible Church. I'm not going to use them today because um, I wanted to look you in the eye, every single one of you, and uh, uh, wanted to see your face, uh, not you looking at the screen. Um, I'm honored by. Uh, some of the guests that are here today, um, wow, there's uh, some very special friends that came. Um, my pastor is here, Michael Bischoff. Michael, wave your hand. And his lovely wife, Darlene. That's my pastor right there. Um, he's ministered, he and Darlene have ministered to Casey and I for, uh, for many, many years now. He's my pastor. And uh, Christina and Lewis are here, who are very dear friends of ours next to Casey as well. Uh, we're glad that they're here. The Gibson family have not left for Texas yet. I am so happy to see you guys. We love you guys, and we're going to miss you terribly. I, I think you were motivated by my moving away. Is that right? Is that what happened? You're like, hey, if he can do it, I can do it. No, we're going to miss you guys terribly, but our hearts are always going to be in Haiti and with you wherever you guys go there. So we love you. And I know there are a few others. I also wanted to um, point out uh, Dr. Fred Maybe. Dr. Maybe, wave your hand and his family right there. Uh, I had Fred Maybe, uh, Dr. Maybe, at Talbot Theological Seminary when he was a brand new professor. I, I, I was... He was my guinea, I don't know, who's the guinea pig there? I don't know. But anyway, I was a senior, I thought I knew everything, and I had a rookie prof who was coming in telling me what I didn't know, and I wasn't quite sure about it. And here he is today, I haven't seen him in 14 years. So Dr. Maybe, it's very good to see you here today. I know there uh, may, have, may be a, a few others that I might have missed, but I just want to say I'm, I'm grateful for some of the, the, the non-coast friends that are here today, and uh, we're we're grateful that you're here with us. Well, having been uh, uh, your pastor for nearly 10 years, I, I want to say that I uh, read the Bible differently now than I did 10 years ago. Uh, I read the Bible differently now than I certainly did at Biola and Talbot, uh, though I'm extremely grateful for all that I received at those uh, wonderful uh, schools um, but when I was younger, I, I would always and uniformly, uniformly read the scriptures for the purpose of understanding propositional truth. Propositional truth. I wanted to know about God. I wanted to know about doctrine. I wanted to know about theology. I wanted to know about the word and that is very important. That's a, a stage and, and really a, a something that's a part of everyone's entire life. But generally, it's, it's often a stage of those in their younger years as they're beginning to try and figure out, are the scriptures true? Because we need to read the word from a propositional and apologetic standpoint. We need to read the scriptures and ask the question, is this true? But now as um, I'm getting a little bit older, now as I've come to learn a lot about God and about His Word, my reading of the Word has moved a lot 
in recent years. Instead of desiring to know a list of truths about the Lord, I've been striving to truly know my Lord. I've been striving to know his heart. I've been reading the word with an eye for seeing the quiet, subtle moments where the heart and the beauty and the love of Jesus is on full display. And today I want to share one final message that uh, from the Word, a portion of the Word that I know has touched me deeply, especially in light of my experience here at Coast Bible Church. The title of this message is, Look at Them and Love Them. Look at them and love them. And it emanates from Matthew 14, beginning in verse 6. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab one right in front of you. I want everybody to grab one today. Grab a Bible and turn to Matthew chapter 14. It's on page 517, for those of you that don't know where Matthew is. Matthew 14, page 517. A little bit of a backstory on this text. Most of us remember the story of John the Baptist's death. John the Baptist, when he died. The time and the setting was, uh, it was King Herod's birthday. And his stepdaughter was dancing in front of him. Herod was so amused that he offered his stepdaughter anything she wanted. He said, you can have whatever you want. Not knowing what she wanted, she went to her mother, Herodias, for some advice. And her mother had an idea. You see, her mother was angry with John the Baptist. John was in prison because he had spoken out against Herod and Herodias' marriage. An illegitimate marriage. John had called out Herod and Herodias publicly because it was a false marriage. Because Herodias was already a married woman. She had already been married to Philip, Herod's brother. And so, being angry with John the Baptist, Herodias told her daughter to ask the king Herod for the head of John the Baptist. Will you stand with me as we pick up the story in verse 6 of chapter 14? Our reading this morning in Matthew 14, beginning in verse 6, says this, But when Herod's birthday was celebrated, the daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod. Therefore he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. And so she, having been prompted by her mother, said, Give me John the Baptist's head here on a platter. And the king was sorry. Nevertheless, because of the oaths and because of those who sat with him, he commanded it to be given to her. And so he sent, Herod did, and had John beheaded in prison. And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl. And she brought it to her mother. Then John's disciples came and took away the body and buried it. And they went and they told Jesus. You may be seated. 
Well, Neil, you picked a morbid text. Uh, really? You, you chose this text as your last message for Coast Bible Church. Hold on. I'll get around. This morning, um, rather than doing what I would have done 10 years ago, which is to dissect the story for its historical and cultural value and extract propositional truth uh, uh, that would you know, prove the historicity of the story or demonstrate the veracity of, of the situation. Instead, I, wanna, I want you to turn your attention to the very end of the story today, to verse 12, where it says, Then John's disciples, this is John the Baptist's disciples, Then John's disciples came and took away the body and buried it and went and told Jesus. The first uh, three Gospels uh, speak of the, the, the death of John the Baptist. Only the first two really record the details, Matthew and Mark, but only Matthew, only Matthew records the detail that John's disciples also went from there, from that time of burial and mourning, and went and found Jesus and told him what had happened. I wonder how Jesus would have reacted to that moment of receiving that news. Remember who John the Baptist was. John was Jesus' older cousin, the son of Elizabeth and Zechariah. John baptized Jesus. John saw the Spirit descend like a dove upon his cousin. John was the first to proclaim that Jesus was the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. John's entire ministry revolved around Jesus to bear witness of the light of Messiah. And so you can imagine how hard Jesus must have taken the news of the death of John the Baptist. It must have been an incredibly painful moment for him. But you know what I learned this past week that I, that I had not known prior and that is that the Bible, this is interesting, the Bible never describes Jesus' reaction to the death of John the Baptist. The Bible never describes it. It describes other moments where Jesus interacted with someone who was dying, those who were strangers to him and those who were close to him, like Lazarus. But the Bible never describes Jesus' reaction to the death of John the Baptist. I was blown away by this. I read the accounts of John's death. Nowhere did it say how Jesus reacted. As I scoured the scriptures, looking for the response to his cousin's death, I learned something new. I learned something new. It wasn't Jesus' reaction that I learned, because it's not there. But what I learned ministered to me deeply as a man because it reminded me so much of these past years that we've spent together here at Coast. 
You see, while the scriptures don't describe how Jesus felt when John died, they do describe what our Lord did in the moments that followed John's death. And I think there's a lesson in this for us today in the way in which Matthew's gospel has been crafted to speak to this lesson. What did Jesus do after John's death? Actually, I might put it another way. What didn't Jesus do after John's death? Would you continue with me in the story, beginning again in verse 12 of chapter 14? It says, Then his, that is John's disciples, came and took away the body, and they buried it, and they went and told Jesus. Now look at this. When Jesus heard it, verse 13, he departed from there by boat to a deserted place by himself. But when the multitudes heard it, they followed him on foot from the cities. And when Jesus went out, he saw a great multitude and he was moved with compassion for them and he healed their sick. John had just been beheaded. Jesus' cousin the man who had baptized the, the Lord had just been executed and, and John's followers had just buried him, had gone out to tell Jesus and when they told Jesus what had happened, Matthew tells us precisely what Jesus wanted to do. It says when Jesus heard it, he departed from there by boat to a deserted place by himself. To which I say, of course he did. Of course he did. It's exactly what I would have done. We, we, we would expect nothing less. He heard this news. The Bible doesn't describe how he reacted, how he felt inside, but he heard it, he received it, and he got into a boat by himself. And went up on a hillside by himself to be alone. And we all know why. What painful news to receive. What heartbreaking news. Jesus needed some time to process it all. He needed time to weep and grieve and mourn. He needed time to cry out to the Father and to be comforted in his moment of deep sorrow. And oh, how I wish, oh, how I wish, the next verses in Matthew could have described that deserted experience, that experience in, in, in the deserted place up on the hillside. Oh, how I wish that Matthew could have devoted the next five or ten verses to explain exactly what it was like for our Lord to go up alone, away, and to grieve the loss of a family member, of a dear friend, of a partner in ministry. But Matthew doesn't do that. Matthew can't do that. Because in that moment, in the moment when Jesus desperately needed to be alone with his thoughts, the people desperately needed Jesus. Look again at verse 13. When Jesus heard it, he departed 
from there by boat to a deserted place by himself. But when the multitudes heard it, they followed him on foot from the cities. And when Jesus went out, he saw a great multitude and he was moved with compassion for them and he healed their sick. News of John's death spread like wildfire. He wasn't beloved, John wasn't, by the religious leaders of Israel. But the common people, they knew in large numbers that this John the Baptist, that he was a prophet of God. And upon news of his death, Matthew says a a great multitude, a large crowd of people began forming You can be sure that a sizable portion of these people who congregated together were doing so precisely because of the news of John's death. Those who gathered were broken and grieving. Many of them had been baptized by John. Their children had been baptized by the prophet. And now they were like sheep without a shepherd. And so, though fraught with grief himself, and though weary and exhausted, by the knowledge of John's death, though he himself was the one needing the most consolation. Here we see Jesus comforting and pastoring and healing the people. And if that wasn't enough, most of us probably never realized that it was in this context that Jesus went on to feed the 5,000 people that had gathered. This was the context. John had died. Jesus had gotten on a boat by himself to go away, away from everyone, to process it and to pray and to think and to cry out to God. And as he's up on that deserted mountain, the people hear the news and like sheep without a shepherd, go clamoring for help and hope And perspective. They go to Jesus. 5,000 strong. Plus women and children. And Jesus looks upon these multitudes. And has compassion on them. And he feeds them. You see when you're Jesus. When you're the teacher. When you're the leader. When you're the shepherd. You must comfort and love the sheep even as you so desperately seek out the love and comfort of the Father. Not all of us are teachers or leaders like Jesus, but make no mistake, every single one of us knows how Jesus must have felt in that moment. Every single one of us knows what it's like to be faced with a decision to either serve others or to take time yourself to get away and to get up on that mountain and to be quiet and and process and think and pray and cry out because you've got nothing left. We all know what that's like. Serve others now? Really? Listen to them now? Do you know what I've gone through, Lord? Minister to them now in this moment? Don't you know what's on my plate? 
Don't you know all I've been going through, Lord? Mothers know what this is like. When their husbands come home from work and tell them what a hard day they had, all the while not knowing that you, you mothers, had just had your worst day with the kids and you feel like a failure. Mothers know what that's like. We all know what that's like when our our parents call on the phone. Those of us who are older, our our parents call and they say they they miss you. They just want to talk to you. They just want to check in. How are the how are you? How are the grandkids? And you say, you know what, mom, you know what, dad, I just I I don't know if I have time for this. I'll call you back. We know what this is like when our kids come up to us and, and pull on us and say, play with me, play with me, play with me. And you sit and you're thinking in your minds, I I've played with you as much as I possibly can. I can't I can't play with you anymore. I'm done. Go play upstairs. I'm done. Deserted place time. We know what it's like when the boss jumps on you at work and gives you a poor review or a negative criticism even when you know you are giving your all to the company. Husbands, you know what it's like when your wife grows frustrated with you for being distant or disengaged with her and the kids, though you know deep down it's because you're filled with anxiety over your job, over whether you're going to pay the bills that month. And pastors know what it's like to experience the sorrow and the heartbreak of sin, of sickness, of death within the church knowing that they need to to be comforted from the pain, but also knowing that the entire church is waiting to be comforted. A pastor feeling that deep desire to go away to the deserted place because he has nothing left, but also knowing that he, he must counsel the crying ones, sit beside the dying ones, stand on the stage, And give hope. When sometimes he has none. This is why. This story what Jesus does here and how he does it. Where, it. where does it come from? This story is why I want you to care. I want you to care for Pastor Tom and Aaron like you've cared for me and Casey. Because you need to know that he will now be asked to do on a daily basis 
what Jesus is doing right here. To give love and comfort and hope even when he will be the person who may need it most. That is why if you could only give me one word to describe what it's like to be pastor, I would use the word lonely because no one will carry the burdens that Tom carries. And so look, look at Tom and Aaron and love them. And that is why I want you to care for Pastor Doug and for Cassie and for Jeannie and for Colleen, for the elders like you've cared for me. Because as they serve you on staff and as as leaders, know that they do so from a pure heart and a cup that God is pouring into, but a cup that the enemy punctures underneath whenever they receive a criticism or a critique about their ministry or their leadership. So instead, just look at them and love them. And that is why I want you to care for and look after one another. I want you to remember that you're a sinner and that the person you're looking at is a sinner. I want you to know that the people in this room, they will disappoint you. They will fail you. There will be times when they sin against you. But you have a choice in those moments. You can demand from them what God did not demand from you. Or you can look at them and you can love them. Verse 13, when Jesus heard it, when he heard the news of John's death, he departed from there by boat to a deserted place by himself. But when the multitudes heard it, they followed him on foot from the cities. And when Jesus went out, he saw a great multitude and he was moved moved with compassion for them and he healed their sick. The words moved with compassion. All right, I'll, I'll go back to my Biola Talbot days now. The words moved with compassion. Actually, just one word in Greek. It's the term esplanchnesthe. What's beautiful about this verb is that nearly every time, every time it's used in the New Testament, it is used in the passive voice. I'll say that again. Nearly every time this verb, this word is used in the New Testament, it's used in the passive voice, as it is here in Matthew fourteen fourteen. Jesus was moved with compassion. Just as the English describes it, a passive verb is something that happens to you, within you. Something that's almost instinctual within you. Something that emanates. Just comes out. You don't even think about it. It's instinctual. The feeling and subsequent action that comes from esplanchniste in Greek is something that is utterly spirit-driven from the innermost place of the soul. And that makes sense. Because the stem of this verb, splanchna, is the Greek noun meaning bowels or innermost core. The place from which the Jews believed came deep 
and powerful emotion like mercy, compassion, sympathy, affection, and pity. It is said of Jesus in verse 14 that when Jesus went out, he saw a great multitude and he was moved with compassion for them and healed their sick. We might ask the question, where does that love come from? How does that just happen? How do I dig down deep into my inmost being to find it? How is it that it can just come out of me passively as it came out of Christ? Knowing all that he was going through. I know what comes out of me when I'm going through those moments. What comes out of me, what comes out of me is frustration and an abiding word or even anger. Losing hope. And yet look what came out of Jesus in that moment. How can I love and show compassion like Jesus did here? Jesus found, he found that deep compassion from communion with his Father by the Spirit. And that's how you and I can find it too. Brothers and sisters, this kind of of inmost compassion only comes from the Father through the Spirit in the form of the Son as He goes to the cross and takes upon Himself what He should have demanded from you and from me. This kind of compassion only comes from the Father through the Spirit in the form of the Son as He goes to the cross and takes upon Himself what He should have demanded from you and from me. And when we make demands of each other, when we bicker and wound and hurt one another, it is always and uniformly because we are demanding from others what God did not demand from us. It is only when you order your life around the most beautiful truth that Jesus died to pay your penalty, that Jesus died to pay what you owed God, that God demanded of Jesus what He should have demanded from you. Only then, when you order your life around that truth, when you order your life and put that truth at the center, at the core, at the splanchna, at the inmost being of your soul, only when you put that truth there can you, like Jesus, look upon sinners and look upon the sick and look upon the dying and look upon the hurting, only then can you look upon them and love them. It has to come from the knowledge that Jesus put, that Jesus took everything that you owed God and he took it upon himself. And so rather in this life, 
rather than carrying on uh, in ways that would be self-serving and in ways that would uh, have you shut out the needs of others so that you can attend to number one. Find a way, Coast Bible Church. Find a way, elders. Find a way, staff. Pastor Tom. Find a way to let the cross of Jesus Christ sit deep in your belly. Always. And when it becomes impossible to love the unlovely, and when it becomes impossible to carry on with the one who is stuck in addiction, and when it becomes impossible to counsel the marriage that is failing, and when it becomes impossible to receive another call about a possible suicide, and when it becomes impossible to love the sinner, you can look at the cross of Christ and you can say, Jesus, because you did that for me, I will do this for you in your spirit. I want to thank you, church, for extending to me that grace and that compassion. I have no doubt um, that I, I failed you on many occasions. No doubt. I have also no doubt that I sometimes exceeded your expectations and everything in between. But when I failed you, and when Tom fails you, he'll fail you a lot more than me. When I failed you, and when Tom fails you, I want you to look, look at us as sinners, as uh, men who are pastors who are just trying to uh, stand in front of a few while we stand behind one. And I want you to look at them, and I want you to love them. Do it for your spouse, do it for your kids, do it for your coworkers, do it for your friends, do it for your church. Keep doing it for your pastor. Look at them and love them. I've been honored to look at each of you and love you. I want to thank you for that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we look at each other and we, we, uh, we're all just completely flawed. Um, sinners. Uh, we disappoint each other. We... Um, we're sinners, Lord. And as humans, <laughs> we, uh, we demand from you, Lord, to comfort us in all of our troubles. The crowds did it 2,000 years ago when you, Jesus, needed to take care of your own spirit on that deserted mountain. And yet we, we, we didn't let you go. We clamored after you. We clung on to you. And we, we sought deeply your, 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 your love and your comfort and your peace and your words of hope, even when you needed all of those things. 
We thank you, God, that, uh, that you receive us unto yourself, even though we act in such ways. We receive that grace from you, that abundant, abundant grace. And God, we, we really want to come to a place where having received that grace from you in its highest form because of the cross, we want to come to a place where meditating on that cross day by day, we can extend that grace to others. Where we can look at our spouse and love them. Where we can look at our kids and love them. Where we can look at each one in this church and out in the world and everywhere we go. Where the first motive, the first instinct, esplanchnisthe, where the first passive reaction is not one of disgust or fatigue or I've got better things to do. But rather, Lord, when our first instinct is one of deep and moving compassion and love. I pray that for Coast Bible Church, Lord. pray that for my own life. We could uh, learn together to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen.